Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm your host, Adam Rawcliffe. Uh, in perhaps the biggest political surprise of the week, Donald Trump's new press secretary, Anthony Scaramucci, was let go after only 10 days on the job. He replaced the infamous Sean Spicer, uh, and after making some rather unsavoury comments in public about Trump aide Steve Bannon, uh, Scaramucci's departure was apparently at the behest of new chief of staff John Kelly. It appears to say the least a topsy-turvy time in the White House, so we'll be looking to catch up on everything which is going on in the Trump administration. Uh, over in the UK, a number of gender issues have hit the headlines. Justine Greening, Equalities Minister, announced plans to revolutionise the Gender Recognition Act by removing the need for a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria uh, before applying for a gender identity to be recognised. Uh, the move opened the doors to self-identification uh, on any grounds and has been held from, by many lobbyists and pressure groups uh, as a good thing. Uh, and the Brexit discussions ticks on, uh, with the government bogged down in a migration row whilst the PM was away on holiday, uh, and with quarrels over the divorce bill, uh, some are claiming that the UK might not leave the EU until 2022. Uh, so we're going to ask where we're at with Brexit. I'm joined by Director of the Institute of Ideas, Claire Fox, uh, Science and Technology Director, Rob Lyons, uh, and the IOI's newest intern, uh, but also an accomplished and esteemed journalist in her own right, Izzy Lyons. Uh, so let's start with the Scaramucci firing. Uh, do you think there's anything to read into this? Do you think it's same old, same old in Trump's White House, uh, or are we nearing the end of his tenure, Claire? The difficulty with this uh, story is is that, as, as somebody said, uh, what a cracking way to start series two of you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it and it's it is so um, hard to caricature what's going on in terms of the kind of topsy turvy nature of things. And he himself was a figure that if he'd been in drawing a political satire you'd have said was an exaggeration, Scaramucci. I mean, never mind Trump, but I mean these kind of characters come and go. But on a more serious side, um, people are enjoying the spectacle of it all, nervous that it means that, you know, um, that, that, that therefore a soap opera has entered the White House and that there are serious matters going on in terms of North Korea and people kind of talk about these things and what about all of the policy decisions, but people are kind of, um, it's become political entertainment and a substitute for more serious political analysis. I find it worrying, though, that, you know, people or seeing this as like, great, we can get rid of Trump. But the truth of the matter is, is that Donald Trump is the president of America. The farce that might go on in the White House, actually, if we knew what went on in the White House at the best of times, we would know that it's all pretty farcical. We're just getting to visualise and see this. It's not as though it's kind of all been uh, savoury up until now. Um, and, I, and I just, there's something about the kind of salacious enjoyment of it that, that actually is as bad as Trump himself. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd prefer a cooler, calmer look at American politics than through the prism of the personality. Yeah, uh, to me it all reminds me of a Jose Mourinho mind game that uh, Trump creates all these distractions around him, uh, but no one actually seems to be getting to Trump himself anymore. Rob, uh, do you think any of that's true? Uh, do you think Trump's uh, at risk? Well, I don't know whether there's any great strategy behind mm. any of this. Uh, I mean, I agree with Claire about the way in which it reflects, you know, a much longer standing sort of chaotic quality to 
to politics, not just in America but elsewhere. If you've ever seen any episodes of the of Veep, which is the kind of US equivalent of the thick of it, you can see the kind of farces that go on there. And although that's an exaggeration, it is it works because it's built on a certain reality. We can recognise that that politicians are constantly running around trying to come up with policy statements. Um, that are ill thought through, that um, end, end up getting binned, you know, lost in the news cycle, all sorts of stuff. You know, a week is a long time in politics, has never been more true than today. I suppose, in some ways, this kind of thing is uh, a consequence of Trump being the outsider. The reason he got elected was, uh, in some extent, because he wasn't part of the the Washington inner set. But of course, that means that it's very difficult for him to to to. Recruit staff who are of that kind of ilk, who are competent people. You know, the fact that he appointed Scaramucci in the the first place against uh, the wishes of the current, uh, well, his, his spokesman Sean Spicer and his chief of staff shows that he, he's struggling to find people who are worth working with. And the fact that he's made a general his chief of staff shows a certain desperation as well. And I don't think that I think that. People have said that John Kelly taking over as chief of staff will bring some military discipline to proceedings. <laughs> I can't really see that because the problem is essentially with the president himself and his sort of outsider worldview. Um, I, I mean, I, I've, I've heard people talk about the fact that there's so much leaking in the White House now, partly because Trump only pays attention to mainstream media despite the fact that he hates mainstream media. So in order to get something under his nose... It gets leaked to the mainstream media who report it and then Trump pays attention to it. Um, so it is, a, it is a chaotic situation. And I also think that it, it reflects very something very important. I think we said in this podcast you know, back at the end of last year, which is that while the vote for Trump as an outsider had some positive qualities in terms of a, a rejection of the, the political establishment, Trump himself was a very poor vessel for those sort of aspirations or for, for that desire for change because, you know, he is, in many respects, everything that people say he is. He's not, he's not really cut out to be the President of the United States. Um, so, so these things will continue and it's, I think it's very interesting that um, against perhaps some expectations, the Republican Party machine itself doesn't seem to have really kind of been able to sort of get a handle on the situation and persuade Trump to kind of you know go a bit more mainstream as it were it still seems it carries on as before uh, do we think that the performance of Trump in office uh, diminishes any of this positive uh, the positive aspects of him getting ele- elected I guess we can call it a, po- a positive populism uh, do you think all the chaos uh, diminishes uh, that positivity do you think it will come up again? Unfortunately, yeah, I do. I think this is one of many sort of sackings and scandals and leaks that we're going to see over the next three years. However, if Trump can do the things that he was elected to do, I think all of this is largely irrelevant. However, I think it indicates that he probably can't. And it comes back to the idea about what Rob was saying about him being an outsider in Washington. 
well, I often forget he is first and foremost a businessman. Mm. I think that's what we're seeing a lot of. Like in business, if you mess up or if you do something that the boss doesn't like, you get the sack. Whereas in politics, you have to give, convey at least a little bit of harmony and stability. I think we're seeing that slightly even in the UK. I personally think Philip Hammond would have got the sack ages ago if Theresa May didn't know that she had to give off at least a little bit of stability that she didn't really get from the general election. So I think while the sort of chaos um, of Trump's administration doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't I don't think it undermines what he was elected in to do but I do think that it probably is showing that he probably can't do it well the one thing that is confusing is that I think that the machinations at the White House um, are actually the consequence of managerialism and technocracy um, which might sound odd because in a way, you'd think that Trump stood against that kind of, you know, the the, the ever managerial, uh, non-idealistic, no no ideas at all, Hillary Clinton. Um, but in some ways, you know, he he his ideas were relatively superficial, and in the end, we've just got a court uh, and courtiers, and so it's almost like what we can see in all of the Western pol- political elites. And this is just kind of um, they haven't got the discipline to keep it quiet, but it's just kind of uh, laid bare, which is kind of if you're in, who's in, who's out, who likes who, and so on and so forth. Um, So I I think that one of the problems is there is no great big idea other than not being Hillary Clinton and not being, um, you know, and draining the swamp. (laughs) That was the big idea, and that was an important idea, an important expression of democratic will to kind of uh, 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 give a bloody nose um, to, to Hillary and there were some ideas around immigration and jobs and so on but not substantial enough to actually be able to maintain the unity of mission or purpose at the White House that's uh, what I'm hinting at there's a fascinating thing on the leaks question by the way which is that there's a great sort of story where um, one of the uh, women was talking to the interns, uh, one of the senior staff talking to the interns uh, yesterday gave a really inspiring speech about the need for loyalty, about how historically anyone who was taping conversations and leaking and so on and so forth, this was a great act of disloyalty, what it meant to join a team, to be professional. I thought it was like one of the best speeches I've ever read. The problem is I was reading it because it was being taped and it was given to Wired magazine. Somebody who's in, and you know, it's beyond in that sense, the inability to command respect the collapse of the crisis of authority that's being demonstrated, I think, is a broader question for the whole of uh, Western politics. So America's liberal neighbours, Canada, uh, a couple of weeks ago, awarded the first UI gender identity uh, to a newborn baby at the parents' behest. Uh, this opened the doors for uh, anyone from their birth to identify away from the typical M or F. Uh, in terms of sex. Uh, so over in the UK, Justine's Greening, uh, Justine Greening's uh, new legislation seems to echo a lot of the sentiment behind uh, the Canadian one. Uh, do we think that gender should be a matter of self-definition? Is it? I do think someone should be able to determine their own gender. Um, so my problem with Greening's legislation wasn't so much what it set out to do, it was the small print. Largely the reason I think someone should be able to determine their agenda is I believe in the freedom for people to say what they want to say and be who they want to be. But what is part of that is other people in society's right to disagree with that or to not 
acknowledge someone as a man if they think they are a woman. Um, in greening small print, that defines that as a hate crime. So anyone who doesn't agree or doesn't want to acknowledge someone um, for their switched identity is guilty of a hate crime. The best example is a few months ago there was a the, supposedly the first pregnant man or the first man who had given birth. But that man had a womb and had ovaries. In my eyes, that makes you a woman. I should be free to say that. I should be free to disagree. But you know, you put anything like that on social media, or God, or like a, a conversation with friends, and you're transphobic. And in Greening's eyes, you're guilty of a crime. So I think that that's dangerous, and that's something we should challenge definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, the fact that this can happen suggests that gender itself is less and less important in society than it was before. You know, we don't we don't have a bio- biological div- division of labour in society that we might have done. 3,000 years ago or something, or even 200 years ago, frankly. Um, so that, that, so that, you know, there is, there is by law, no discrimination against women. You know, that, that we've discussed before how uh, the gender wars about you know, inequality against women are, are often overstated, that in fact, that w- women are in many ways doing better than men in society. So the whole idea of being a man or a woman having this, that kind of practical importance that it once had, um, as largely gone, so that so therefore people are, can be free to um, identify as they are, you know, as they want to, to a degree. And I agree with Izzy that that, but people should also be able to disagree with that. I mean, I think that it is in many ways a freedom of conscience issue. If you think that somebody with a womb is a woman and a penis is a man, then that seems a perfectly reasonable point of view, uh, regardless of what the law states. Um, there are um, some troubling aspects to this as well um the the idea that you can change a birth certificate really troubles me because it's effectively rewriting history so if somebody a birth certificate is is a record of a moment in history that a a girl or a boy or a person in general was born um and to record that accurately and then at some point in the future simply at the behest of an individual say that that has to be changed, that piece of history has to be changed. I think that that's uh, a, a very troubling development and I really do wonder whether Justine Greening has thought through the implications of that. Uh, no problem with, with, with people wanting to, uh, to, uh, to change their, uh, their identity, as it were, how they present to society, but uh, the, the details of this are concerning. Uh, building on a lot of what Rob said, the other big story uh, which had the headlines revolving around gender uh, was last week's BBC salary revelations. Uh, these were mostly viewed uh, through the lens of gender and the disparity between men and women. Uh, but I guess, Claire, a bit more broadly, do you think viewing work or even society at large through the lens of gender is useful? One of the important things to notice is um, whenever you believe that um, discrimination has occurred. Um, I've always been interested in masses of oppression where people aren't treated equally. I have to say that the BBC pay revelations was not one of the issues that struck me as evidence or proof that women are treated as third-class citizens. It was evidence and proof of the fact that in often unfathomable uh, uh, world of Celebrityville, uh, the people were paid an extraordinary amount of money for talking about politics on the radio. I've never actually managed to get the knack of that, but I don't think it's because, uh, not the talking politics on the radio, but the getting paid large sums of money. But I don't feel as though it's a gender discrimination question. And I think that, you know, it's been irritating that the focus of that debate has become the prism of gender, and it's 
presentation of women as victims who were on over uh, 150,000, 200,000 pounds because they weren't getting the equivalent of their male uh, uh, presenters. And, and for all sorts of complicated reasons, actually, often because they weren't presenting as many hours and doing as many programmes, it wasn't even that simple. But it, but it sort of relates back to this sort of gender question because I think that, um, you know, Rob made the point that, you know, a lot of these matters have largely been dealt with. Really, only 25 uh, years ago, you could actually be told by a prospective employer that you couldn't get a job because you were a woman and you might go off and have kids or because they didn't think women were up to the job. There was kind of blatant ex, uh, uh, explicit discrimination or, or, and culturally and socially, you know, femininity and masculinity were very clearly defined um, uh, um, uh, sets of attributes which we all knew were socially constructed and would drive you mad so we, the little woman isn't really up to the kind of rational uh, coverage of politics for example or and so on and so forth that's all in the past which is why the fusses about um, equal pay seem to me to be so overblown in comparison with the strides that have been made um, but that's what's so peculiar then about the fact that gender has become such a source of acrimony and dispute because there seems to be to be more equality and um, more fluidity more you know I mean you know if you you know if you kind of look a bit butch and have short hair people don't walk around going you're a man right I mean or, you know what I mean or if you're uh, slightly feminine as a man people don't say oh you're a woman you know these <laughs> things are a lot like that right um, everybody, there's experimentation, there's much more open discussion about you can be whatever you want. And then people say, well, I demand to rigidify this, right? So I, I, I now want to, you know, I, I can't, I, I now want you to recognise that I am a man rather than that maybe I have things which were normally associated with masculine traits. These things are becoming much more fixed and the demand for public recognition. I'm not talking about gender, gender dysphoria, by the way. Mm. There are undoubtedly people who actually feel that they are in the wrong sex. They've always been a small minority of people, and those people have had something called gender dysphoria and wanted to do something about it, medically, hormonally. It meant taking some very severe um, uh, uh, medical interventions to change their gender, and those people who were prepared to do that, all power to them, right? Because it's not something you'd wish on people because it's a very arduous task and was um, to be treated with great respect and sensitivity. This is very different than basically saying, I've decided I'm a man, right? Or the uh, um, kind of slightly whimsically, especially for particularly ever younger people, where it becomes a kind of, how dare you uh, uh, call me a, a, particular, a man or a woman, or I declare this. And so I do feel as though this is a much deeper crisis of identity and entitlement and confusion about who we are, rather than a kind of great liberation in the sense of oppressed people fighting off the, uh, you know, the kind of cudgels of authoritarianism. I also think there's something quite authoritarian about saying, you know, how can you assign M or F at birth? <laughs> It's like, well, you can. That is a very straightforward thing, right? This is, you are born a female or you are born a male. This is the least interesting thing about you as it happens, but it's worth noting it on your birth certificate. If you want to become anything else, then that is your life's work. 
but to reduce yourself to those categories seems to me to be far more of a tyranny than anything which good old patriarchal misogyny might have done to women in the past. Yeah, I wasn't, well, back to the BBC pay gap, I suppose, I wasn't particularly surprised at at the data that was released, nor the reaction to it, a lot of it, which was hysterical. The thing I found most frustrating was the inaccuracy of a lot of it. Um, I think it comes back to what Claire was saying, that people were sort of trying to, there was this argument that what was going on in the BBC was supposedly indicative of something that's going on in wider society, when how the wages are set when you work in the media and when you work in entertainment, you cannot compare them to how wages are set when you, you know, stack supermarket shelves or if you're a nurse. When you work in the media, when you work in entertainment, how, what, how you're paid is determined on how popular you are, how many views you bring in, how much the content you produce is consumed. And that was largely ignored. And for some reason, your guess is as good as mine. Gary Lineker is more popular than Claire Balding. So I found, found that quite frustrating about the BBC. There are, a lot, there are a lot of factors as to why certain people are paid more. And those were completely and utterly ignored in favour of this victimhood, women are oppressed angle. Yeah. I think the BBC should probably thank the lucky stars that they got away with it for so long rather than uh, uh, being in a catastrophe. Uh, so to Brexit, uh, there's talk now uh, that the UK might not leave the European Union until 2022 because of quarrels once again over the divorce bill which the EU is demanding from the UK. Rob, do you think if the vote is uh, del- if leaving is delayed to 2022, the vote will be being betrayed. Do you think we have to leave in 2019? Um, well, it depends what the, they they mean. Um, so at the moment, I haven't seen anybody explicitly say that we shouldn't leave the EU in March 2019. Mm. Um, well, yeah, apart from Ramona's who want the whole thing scrapped. Mm. But but in terms of people with some influence on, on the matter. I think they all accept that we should leave the European Union at the end of the Article 50 process in in uh, a year and a half's time. Um, the argument is now about transitions and final destinations. So the, the so one side of the argument believes we should just, uh, uh, um, where it's 22nd of March 2019, we should leave the EU, we should leave the Customs Union, we should leave the single market. Um, we should uh, end free movement of EU uh, citizens into uh, the UK and, and so on. Just basically what you might call a cliff edge option. Um, we just get on and deal with it. Um, the, the alternative, and that seems to me at the moment, seems to be the front runner, is some kind of transitional arrangement whereby we sustain some or all of those things, We um, particularly free, free movement and possibly remaining in the single market for another year or two after um, the um, so that, that Article 50 process has, has ended. And I can see arguments on both sides. On the one, one hand, why not just get on with it? But on the other hand, there is a lot to do um, in terms of just bureaucratic stuff to get through in terms of trading arrangements, border controls, customs, all that sort of stuff. Um, and not by any means the least, what the hell we're going to do with the, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. That is a, that is a thorny issue to be dealt with. Um, so I can see the, the arguments on both sides. I can also see the arguments that people say, well, actually, being members of the European Free Trade Association, like Norway and Iceland, um, is quite a lot different from being members of the EU. It's not simply uh, eu lights. There, there is a considerable considerably greater amount of control for members 
the members of that organisation compared to being members of the EU. So I can see arguments on both sides, but I, th I think that the underlying thing still seems to be a that the, the Remainers are still there and they're still very influential and they still want to get as much EU as possible into uh, any final settlement and hope that by stringing out the process we end up with something that's EU light rather than um, really respecting the vote and leaving the, the European Union properly and if they do that, if they succeed in doing that, I think that is a betrayal of the vote. Um, I think I'm part of a weird minority in the fact that I've never been more confident that Brexit will happen. I'm not like I think if you look at who's controlling a lot of it now and like you know the leading sort of ministers in our government, none of them really are Brexiteers, right? So I think that gives and none of them really know where they stand on the issue. Philip Hammond's saying one thing, David Davis is saying another, and Theresa May is saying something else. I think that gives us in the public, you know, both Lever and Remainers, because I think we do have to remember the majority of the Remainers are Democrats, they do want to see this vote enacted, there's only a small minority, they are incredibly influ influential, who do want to thwart the vote. But I think that gives us a lot more power and, and a lot more say in how this happens. And the large point of Brexit was about holding our politicians to account. And I think now we're in a position to do that. When things are released into the media, when ideas are thrown out there, when hysteria is created about something that we don't agree with, I think we are able to shape the way that Brexit happens. And one thing I don't think will be helpful is leavers stamping their feet and having a whine and saying, no, we want it in 2019 rather than, you know, 2022. I don't think that's particularly helpful. It, like I've said, there's a lot to do. If that means it taking slightly longer and doing it right, <coughs> I would be far. Yeah, I'd be on, on, on team taking like a little bit longer, but doing it right. Yeah, I find it quite strange. It appears now that since the vote has happened, everyone is an expert on every single particular aspect of EU legislation, particularly Article 50. Uh, I think the role we should be taking as a public is more holding the people who are managing these processes to an account rather than debating the ins and outs of legislation when you actually have no idea what it's going on about. Uh, Claire, anything you want to add on where we're at? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the nervousness is that the prevarication is a disguise for um, not enacting the people's will. And I can see that people are nervous about that. And I think there's good reason to be, although I, I do think that things have gone so far that, that, I mean, gone so far in as much as this has been now understood to have been a big deal, the Brexit vote, by everyone in the ruling class, even though they hate it, that prevaricate as they might do there's a kind of nervousness that they can't get out of it even if they're kind of trying to put it off I, 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 I'm broadly sympathetic to all that you've said in terms of I'm not uh, fixated on the dates and, and so on and I think the technical details of leaving are being over fetishised um, as it were by our side of the argument sometimes by the leave side which can kind of seem to be saying, you know, if you don't do this on this date, that is a betrayal, and you think, oh, come on, be reasonable. Um, I also think, though, that, that there is a lot of confusion about freedom of movement in particular, because I think it is important to recognise that leaving the EU will be symbolised by the end of freedom of movement, and that the end of freedom of movement, as in the end of the EU's demand that there should be freedom of movement for EU citizens throughout Europe and Britain should be part of that is has to end for people to, to, to feel that we've left the EU. It's one of the big, not just symbolic, but practical examples. 
This does not mean, it seems to me, the end of the story, because then, and the way people talk is, you know, we will end free movement and there will never, ever, ever be a European citizen who will ever come to Britain again. There'll never be a European scientist. There'll never be a European, you know, that kind of catastrophizing is going on at the moment. So I think the important thing for us all the time to keep remembering is why we voted Brexit in the sense of um, democratic accountability and we decide our own laws. And it seems to me an important discussion to be having now. Well, when we leave the EU and there is no freedom of movement as defined by the EU, what sort of attitude are we going to have to people who want to come and work and live in Britain from wherever they might want to come and work and live from, whether they're from Syria, whether they're from Greece, whether they're from France? And in, in a funny sort of a way, we're not having that discussion at all because people are kind of saying, once we end free movement, there will be this, you know, no nurses anywhere and so on and so forth. Or people say, we've got to close the borders because it's very important we keep people out. And there are people in both extremes saying that there's no room for them here. And British, effectively British jobs for British workers. I'd like a more interesting and challenging uh, debate. I haven't got any answers for it, but I'd like to have that discussion. Which why we're going to have it at the Battle of Ideas, actually. It's one of the sessions I'm looking forward to called Where Are We Going to Get the Workers? Good plug, Rob. Uh, can I also plug the Economy Forum, which is discussing this very same topic on the 6th of September. Um, but back to the point, you made a comment earlier, Adam, about people becoming experts in these things. And the most bizarre example of that um, has been chlorinated chicken. So this has become the sort of uh, the lightning rod for all sorts of fears about having a trade deal with, a trade deal with the America but also about leaving the EU. So, so um, the argument goes something like, if we leave the EU, we're desperately going to have to scrabble around for trade deals with other p- people. Most obvious one is America. Oh, and America are going to force us to, to accept their standards of, uh, of agriculture and food processing, including dipping chickens in what amounts to swimming pool water for a couple of minutes. This is the end of the universe. Um, and I, you know, so I wrote a spot, an article for Spiked, which went up on Monday, which basically said, as far as I can see from looking at the evidence, uh, chlorinated chicken is just as safe as whatever we do in the EU, um, and the, the rates of salmonella and whatever are just as uh, you know, roughly the same as they are in in the EU, if anything lower. And I've had pelters on Twitter. Would you be prepared to eat chlorinated chicken? You know, people have to put their mouths where their mouths are um, about this kind of food panic. And I said, well, I, I've been to America. I, sh- I assume the chicken that I ate while I was in America was chlorinated chicken. And I have suffered no ill effects and I would be quite happy to eat it again. But people get really worked up about this stuff. And it is a example of how this general sort of anxiety about leaving the EU and how it uh, be- becomes uh, sort of focused on slightly mad issues like the particular way in which we process chickens um, and but I think we're good, this one's going to run and run we're going to find more, plenty more examples of people becoming experts in the most uh, esoteric issues um, with, as a reflection of their concerns about Brexit. Can I just quickly say on that what I really thought was hilarious about that was how chauvinist and protectionist people were so the great cosmopolitan um, the Remain pro-EU the Remainers, not the majority of people who voted Remain of course um, 
and basically started saying, would you trust these foreign ways of uh, dealing with your chicken? You know, everyone thing in America is very dubious. Food standards are over there are very, you know, this is one of the most advanced countries in the world. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is, and so on and so forth. And then sort of like, we don't want your American chickens coming over here and destroying our agricultural standards. And it's hilarious because it's got all of the um, anti-foreign, xenophobic and protectionist rhetoric, which allegedly is associated with those who want to leave the EU. Um, and it does sort of tell the lie to how these things have become... Um, uh, we've forgotten, and we should not forget at the Institute of Ideas, but we've forgotten what the real debates were in relation to that referendum over a year ago. So on next week's podcast, Rob Lyons eats chlorinated chicken. <laughs> so <laughs> make sure you tune in. Uh, the other big story of the week is an ongoing riot, uh, again at a UK prison, this time at the Mount in Hertfordshire. Uh, it's kind of brought the prisons crisis once again uh, to the mainstream attention. Of course, the Institute of Ideas is going to go in and sort this out. Uh, so beyond debating matters beyond bars kicks off with year two, again at HMP Birmingham on Thursday. Uh, after a successful year one, uh, we hope to once again encourage the lively interrogation of ideas inside UK prisons uh, and hope to get the prisoners to look a bit about the world beyond their current circumstances. Uh, we can't wait, uh, so watch out for updates. If you'd like to hear more of the podcast, uh, you can find our archive on the instituteofideas.com forward slash podcasts uh, and also subscribe on iTunes.